God, we love you. What can we say? Your glory shines forth in the singing of the birds and the shining of the sun and the growing of the grass. And man, Lord, even in the seasons, we are reminded of your faithfulness, that, uh, that you are making all things new, that you provide for your creation, that all of creation looks to you as sustainer and provider. And Lord, let us not be proud in that regard either. Let us be lowly and humble before you as we remember your faithfulness and your provision. God, I, I pray for Jim. I thank you for the journey that you've had him on to bring him to our church and raise him up and make him a man worthy of taking on this leadership responsibility among the people of God. Lord, would you continue to equip him and guard him from the schemes of the evil one? Um, Lord, I, I pray that he would be a, a beneficial part of our team and that he would bring greater life and depth and discipleship to our church. We thank you for Trisha, Lord, and your amazing provision to give us a leader who can oversee our children's ministry, who can bring um, a focus of attention and uh, a greater depth of discipleship to that program as well. Lord, we pray for the children that are going to be under her leadership. God, we ask for their souls that you would uh, grow them up in a deep, deep love for you. And Lord, as we spend our time looking at your word this morning. I pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word, that you would do a work in our hearts, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're nearing the end of our uh, series that we've been calling Theology on Fire. I realize that on your uh, bulletin it just says theology. It's supposed to say theology on fire, because theology is not meant to be this merely academic thing, but it's supposed to enliven passion in our hearts. We've been remembering and reflecting on the, the historical significance of this month, which is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that has deeply shaped the Christian faith. And the Reformation, just in case you haven't been around, has been or, or was this intense historical moment uh, where the church was forced to take a good hard look at the theology that it held to and evaluate whether this theology was really the doctrine of God, what God had ordained and proclaimed, or whether through the centuries the theology of the church, the doctrines of the church, had been corrupted slowly by men. And unfortunately, the verdict at this point in history was that uh, the church had strayed from the light of truth. But fortunately, the, that verdict gave way to the restoration of the Christian faith through the doctrines that were outlined by the Reformers, by the Reformation. And we've already looked at a few of these uh, doctrinal summaries, uh, but I think it's only appropriate to sort of remind you what they are, okay? First, sola scriptura is what we looked at a few weeks ago. The Christian faith locates its final authority for life in Scripture and in Scripture alone. So it's not the Pope, it's not church councils, it's not tradition or philosophy or practicality or, or social norms or any other thing that determines what we believe. Those things may have a value to a degree in their own right. We're not rejecting them outright. But the church is ultimately an institution that is built on the word of God as the utmost authority that determines how Christians are supposed to live and what they believe. 
Second, Sola Fide. And if you weren't here for any of these weeks, um, recently we set up a podcast, so you can go back and pretty easily listen to them. But Sola Fide, we were blessed to have uh, Dr. Brian Arnold join us. And just as a reminder, Christianity maintains that we are saved through an act of faith. It's faith that saves us. And it's not just faith in something. It is faith in Jesus Christ, the living Son of God. And faith is not a work in and of itself that we should boast in it. Rather, faith trusts in the object. It is about Jesus. That is, the point of faith is not just faith in and of itself, but it is something that trusts wholly in the person and work of Christ. And then third, sola gratia, by grace alone. We believe that salvation is a gift that God grants to sinners. It's a gracious act that he and he alone does. He's the only one who can save mankind, and we contribute really nothing to the process whatsoever. And so God looked down on his creation with compassion, and in grace he saved some for the glory of his name. And as Christians, we reject the idea that we had anything to do with deserving this grace, It's a gift, again, so that no one may boast before God. And then today we're going to talk about solus Christus. And the reason why I needed to sort of recap the previous three is because all of these are so intimately tied together. They need each other in order to function properly. If you have one without the other, you really don't have a system that holds together. What does Scripture point to? It points to Jesus as the Son of God. What must we place our faith in for salvation? In Christ alone, the gracious saving one. From where does our salvation come? It is a gift of grace that's been bought and paid for at the expense of God himself. And so today as we talk about solus Christus, that it's through Christ alone that our salvation comes, we have to keep in mind each of these things all together because they form this whole that works together. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who is himself the fullest expression of the love of God as God reveals to us this wonderful plan of salvation to the glory of his name. Okay, now before I go any further, I just want to pause. I want to slow down for a second because we're going to talk about the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ this morning. And I really don't want you to miss this. I mean, it would be tragic if I got up here and and spoke and we left here without really immersing ourselves in the beauty of this idea. Jesus Christ is everything to the Christian faith. I mean, without him, we have nothing. We're going to talk about some weighty ideas this morning. I admit that up front. I think some things are going to challenge your brain and challenge your heart. They're going to challenge your intellection with their paradoxical nature. But the truth is, I really don't care about your brain this morning. I'm not concerned about your intellect. I'm not concerned about stretching merely your theological understanding. My deepest desire this morning is to make your heart leap for joy as you look Jesus in the face and you see his glory. And so please don't fail to grasp the wonder 
of Jesus Christ. And don't misunderstand, I'm not trying to uh, not speak to your mind, but neither am I trying to sort of like tickle your emotions and make you feel something warm and fuzzy. I don't care about your brain being puffed up with knowledge, and I don't care about manipulating your emotions so you feel something uh, that isn't true either. What I'm really talking about here is a deep and transcendent moment where you are able to gaze beyond the things of this world into the glory of the face of Jesus Christ and to know in your heart of hearts how truly beautiful he is. I want you to see him this morning so that you're first compelled to fall on your face in worship and then to jump to your feet and to run hard after him past everything that this world has to offer into the eternity of his grace. God forbid that we would turn our minds to Jesus this morning without the affections of our heart being plunged into an almost unbearable flurry of desire for him. And so I want to pause and pray again that God would do that work among us this morning, that he would give us the proper reverence and awe required as we approach this subject. Let me pray. God, we don't pray in church as a transitional part of our service. It's not an afterthought. We are desperate for you to work. And so we ask because you have commanded us to ask. We pound on the door, we knock and we seek because you have said that if we do, we will find. And so, Lord, I pray that you would would allow your Holy Spirit to descend on this place that we might have a true appreciation for your glory. Lord, don't merely speak to our minds or tickle our hearts. God, do a work in the deepest part of our affections that we might behold what a beautiful God you are, that we might see the glory that you have shining through in the face of Jesus, that we might be in awe of who he is and what he has done. Lord, would you stir in our hearts by the power of your spirit this morning. Let us not miss how profound this moment is that you have prepared to meet with us, to show us who you are. We thank you for your word, God, and we just ask in desperation that you would do this work. Amen. Well, I want to remind you that at the heart of the Reformation, Luther's desire was to bring mankind low before the feet of Jesus, that the church might once again stare up, not into the face of the Pope, who would mediate the presence of Jesus. Luther's desire was to bring mankind low before the feet of Jesus himself, that we might peer up into the glorious shining face of Christ, who is God. That Jesus himself, the Son of God, might mediate to mankind the glory of God rather than a pope or the magisterium. And one of the ways that Luther did this was by properly defining the position of man, properly defining the position of God, and pointing to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. A work that only Jesus could accomplish for us because he is himself God. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Um, I would prefer that you do it in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a table over there where you can pick one up. You can go and do that right now uh, or after the service. 
If not, the verse is inside of your bulletin and you can peek there as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I'm in 1 Corinthians. Give me one second. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to start by talking about the darkness that's referenced here, through which the light of Christ has come piercing like a glorious ray of sunlight. The verse is loosely quoting Genesis chapter 1, but it's not doing so in a literal sense. Do you see what Paul does here? He's not retelling the story of creation. He is using the story of creation as a metaphor to talk about the salvation of man. Paul didn't come up with this idea himself. He actually got it from Jesus. If you were to go to John chapter 3, verse 19, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. I'll read it. Jesus says this in John three nineteen. The light has come into the world. He's playing again, I think, off of the creation story. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you were here last week, uh, I was talking about sola gratia by grace alone. I gave this illustration from the movie The Princess Bride, uh, right? That the, the guy who is not completely dead, he's only mostly dead. Uh, when Jesus says that people love the darkness because their works are evil, you need to understand that he's not suggesting that people are pretty good in general and that what they need is a little bit of life coaching to bring them to their maximum potential. Jesus is echoing all of Scripture, which teaches that you, you, from the very moment that you were conceived, you are a wretched, evil sinner. And ponder how awful and how offensive that truth is for just a second. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want it to slide by. I actually want you to comprehend with me for a moment how offensive that is. Let me ask you, when, when I look at you and I tell you that from the moment you were conceived, you are a wretched sinner who loves the darkness because your works are evil, does that upset you? Does it offend your proud human sensibilities? If it does offend you, then I think it only proves my point that we fundamentally fail to misunderstand how absolutely offensive our sin is to a holy God. See, in contrast, the world tells you, you are pretty good. Nobody's perfect, of course, but you're pretty good. And yet Jesus' assessment of you is that you love the darkness because your works are evil. You don't just commit sins. The very core of who you are is like a malignant cancer, festering, dragging your body down to eternal death apart from Christ. We love the darkness. That's why we hide our sin. Even those of us who are saved and know Jesus as Lord and Savior understand this to some degree, we keep secrets from our spouses. 
There are things that you would not want to tell your pastor or your best friend. We love the darkness of our sin. If I could place a camera on your life, every hidden moment, every exposed moment, every single moment of your life and your day, and in addition to that, get a microphone on your thoughts and your feelings, if I could broadcast that live feed online, you would protest in anger, frustration, shame, and fear because you would not want the world to know the things that you think and feel, the things that you do when you think that nobody else is aware. Now, lest you think I'm being unfair in my assessment, here's what the Bible says in Romans 3, echoing Psalm 5. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom, or the venom of asps, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, you do realize that that passage of Scripture is describing you, right? That's you. It's not merely referring to your neighbor who you may despise. It may not merely be referring to your boss who you struggle to get along with. Uh, It's not talking about the worst of ISIS. It's not talking about Republicans or Democrats, whatever your preference is. It's not talking about Hitler. It is describing you in your position before God. Now, the reason I'm hitting on this so hard is because we think far too highly of ourselves, which is how the Catholic Church ultimately came to the conclusion that man is saved by what Jesus does and also what man does. It is in part the grace that Christ gives us, And it is in part the good deeds that we do as people who are seeking Jesus. It's a cooperation of grace and works that leads God to find us acceptable in his eyes. But listen, if man is saved by uh, by faith in Jesus and also some good works or righteous deeds of his own, pull out your scissors and cut out Romans chapter 3 right now. Because it's really just a very mean text of Scripture, if you ask me. It's very insensitive to the inherent goodness that you have that will lead you to be acceptable in the eyes of God. What I want you to understand is that when we wrongly think highly of ourselves, the natural consequence is that we think very lowly of Jesus, of what he has done. When we exalt ourselves, we diminish Christ. If you're pretty much good on your own, then Jesus didn't do very much to make you right before God. But if you are dead, if you are sick with sin to the point where you are already a corpse from the moment of your conception, then Jesus has truly done an astounding work to bring you out of darkness and put you in the light of his glory. His love is suddenly extravagant beyond explanation. It is glorious that he would go to such great lengths to save you, to redeem 
a person like me, a person like you. And as he becomes exalted, what does he do? He lifts us wretched sinners up with him into exaltation. And this is a work that can only be done solus Christus, by Christ alone, the Son of God. It doesn't end there, because not only do we need to understand our position before God as one of being lowly, we have to understand what that position really means. And this is tough too, I admit, because much has been made in the modern era of the love of God, which is true. But before we can understand the love of God, we have to grasp this concept. First and foremost, what has God saved you from? Ponder that question in your head for a second. What has God saved you from? I think most people would answer hell or death or sin or maybe the darkness that our passage from 2 Corinthians refers to. And if you answered any of those things, I really want you to understand that you are ultimately wrong. You do not understand what God has saved you from. Do you know what scripture teaches us God has saved us from first and foremost? Listen again to Psalm 5. And as you listen, remember your lowly state. Just listen. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Or Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. And so what have you been saved from? What truly is the darkness that oppresses mankind? Is it just sin or death or hell? No. The terrible state of mankind is that through our rebellion against God, we have incurred the wrath of God who hates all evildoers and will destroy those who speak lies. That's what Psalm 5 says. The God who despises wickedness, who will by no means spare the guilty from their transgressions. So you need to understand that apart from Jesus Christ, your primary problem is not hell or death. Your primary problem is that an all-powerful God who knows your deepest, darkest secrets has determined to destroy the very darkness in which you love to lurk. That's your problem. And that is actually how it should be. Contrary to what we tend to believe, it is good and right and true for the holy God in righteous anger to eradicate all traces of evil from the creation that he made and first declared it is very good before we ruined it. Now, it is true that is how it should be, but thank God that is not how it is. Sinner, do not despair. Because God in his love and his grace has made a light to shine in the darkness. 
a light of hope before he utterly obliterates the very darkness from which we come. And that light is solus Christus, Christ alone, through whom we find redemption, through whom we find a refuge from the wrath of God who is determined to destroy sin and evil. Flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we find this passage. Paul is again writing, and he's writing to a very dysfunctional church in Corinth. And he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, much has been made about the phrase, those who practice homosexuality because of what's going on in our culture. Don't miss you in this passage. Adulterers, idolaters, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, you're in here somewhere, if nowhere else than an idolater. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But listen, listen. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, you are no longer, even though you were, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God as one of those, you are no longer by the grace of God. What this is telling us is that the wicked, sinful identity that defines the world apart from Jesus Christ no longer defines us who are in Christ Jesus. And that is why we call Christianity good news. I don't know where you're at, but maybe after 10 minutes of hearing me talk, you were like, man, I think it's time to go home. Stay for the good news. We were part of this group of sinners liable for all of the terrible consequences of rebellion against a holy God. But we are no longer because we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified before our holy God. And where does the washing come from? Where does the justification come from? It comes through the exclusive work of Jesus Christ to atone for the sins of men. And see, the reason why the reformers wanted to boast in solus Christus is because it was Christ alone who has made it possible for God to cover us with love instead of wrath. And that is indeed good news. Do you understand what the blood of Jesus has accomplished for you, O sinner? Do you know what it really means that Christ has atoned for your sins? Remember our verse from 2 Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge referred to here is the saving work of Jesus. In simple terms, you have been forgiven of all of your sins because of what Jesus has done in atoning for your sins. You've been forgiven all of your sins. 
You don't need to love yourself more. You don't need to do more. You have been forgiven by the grace of Christ through faith in him. All of them. Already, God has completely obliterated all of the consequences of your sin before him. His wrath has been appeased for your sins. Past, present, and future, it is done. The forgiveness has already been accomplished. But how? How has that forgiveness taken place? Did God just forget about the awful, evil nature of the sin into which you were born? Did he just suppress his wrath and decide, you know what, man, it was Tuesday when I was angry, and now it's Wednesday, and I'm just over it? By no means. Understand, the unchanging God will never cease to hate sin and wickedness and evil with every fiber of his omnipotent, omnipresent being. And so listen, Christ Jesus has accomplished the forgiveness of your sins through substitutionary penal atonement. What does that mean? That means that all of God's infinite wrath towards your sin was poured out upon his son Jesus. He was penalized for the sins that you have committed before God. That means the blood debt that you owe to God for your rebellion against him was paid in full by Christ when you placed your faith in him because of what he did at Calvary on the cross. It means that Jesus stood in your place and suffered as your substitute. All of the punishment that you deserved fell on him. It means that the perfectly holy God reached down to crush his own son, Jesus Christ, for the sins that he never committed. It means that God, in a moment, wholly placed on his own son the utter eternal rejection that you deserve. It means all of the shame and guilt for the love of darkness that you feel was placed on Jesus, who is himself the very source of light, who has appeared to abolish darkness. It means that God killed God so that a wretch like you could live. It means God stood under his own wrath for sin so that you could see the glory of God without perishing. The reason why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, is because Christ Jesus has taken all of the consequences of your sin so that you can now inherit the kingdom of God as a son of God, a daughter of God. Guys, if we don't understand the horrible nature of our sin before God, then Jesus doesn't really seem all that great. It doesn't seem like he's done very much to save us. He doesn't look that glorious. I hate to take you so deep into your own wretchedness, but if we don't boldly go there from time to time, we're never going to see the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Christ in what he has done for us through the atonement, through the cross. If we think that we start off pretty good and Jesus just sort of gives us a hand up for that last little bit, then Jesus is really no big deal at all. He has no glory for us to be in awe of. His love is trivial and his death is just an inspiring symbol for us to follow. But if we understand that we are dead in our sins, if we understand that we love the darkness, 
If we are honest about the depth of the depravity of our souls and the wicked evil of our actions and our motives, then we can truly see how far God has gone out of love for us to lift us out of the depths of darkness, to let the light of his glory shine in our lives through the work of Christ. When we elevate the position of man, we diminish Jesus. But if we lift Christ high by being honest about the wretched state of man in darkness, then the glory of Jesus shines forth with brilliance. And his deep love for us is seen for what it is, something that we could never deserve, but something that he gave so freely. Christ alone is everything, and without Christ, we truly have nothing. But I need a few more minutes because I I need you to understand who Jesus really is. The Christian faith claims that Christ is both fully God and fully man. He is a paradoxical being in nature, 100% God, 100% man. And even if you think about that very hard, I assure you it will not make sense. It just cannot make sense to us, okay? In the person of Jesus, who is true man and true God, God became man. But I think as we talk about Solus Christus, it's important that we understand, uh, I think that we focus our attention on the fact that Jesus is God, okay? That's where I want to go for a few more minutes. It is not hard to comprehend that Jesus is a man to some degree. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. There was a trend a few years ago where uh, celebrities were wearing the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. We get it. Like God or Jesus is man. And so we can wear a t-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. Nobody put on their Yahweh, Father God is my homeboy, right? Because that's like a totally different thing. Those shirts worked because we can grasp that Jesus was a man. And I think far too often... The pendulum swings and we overemphasize the humanity of Jesus. And so forgive me, I'm going to intentionally swing the pendulum back the other way to get you to gaze for a moment on Jesus Christ who is God. I want to do the harder work of trying to grasp that Jesus is eternal God. Back to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shares his glory with no other. Jesus, therefore, is exclusively God. What this verse is telling us is the very same glory that God has can be seen in Jesus. And so do you want to see the glory of the Father like the disciples asked at one point? Jesus, show us the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I am God. We were at men's Bible study this week on Tuesday morning at 5.30. And uh, normally that early, there aren't too many profound things that are being said. Uh, at least not until 6 o'clock when the coffee's really done its work. But um, my friend Scott reminded all of us, he said this beautiful phrase that I had to throw in here. He said, the place where the glory of God shines most brightly is in the face of Jesus. The place where the glory of God shines most brightly is in the face of Jesus. Do you understand how profound that is? If you read through the Old Testament, there are several examples of people who desire to see God and they're not allowed to because the consequence is death. 
It is not possible for an unholy person to look upon the glorious face of God without their utter annihilation being guaranteed in the process. It's interesting to note that in ancient temples, they've done a lot of research on this. When you would walk into an ancient temple, much like Israel had in uh, Jerusalem, as you got into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of that temple, what you would find there was an idol, an image carved from wood or maybe cast from gold. And there it was, so you could bow down before it and worship it. Interestingly, as the priest entered the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple, what you had there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two angels, cherubim, facing each other. And do you know what was in between the two angels, the cherubim? Nothing. Nothing. Because the glory of God was too great to be represented, even in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of the one true God. The point was, there is nothing here. Because God is not in his creation. He is transcendent above and beyond. He is completely other. We don't go into a holy of holies even to look for God. He does not fit inside of the creation that he made with a word. No one can look upon the glory of God and live. And yet, paradoxically, impossibly, beautifully, in Christ alone, we find the fullness of the glory of God. And now we can connect all of the pieces here between man's sinfulness and God's glory so that we can truly see how amazing the concept of Christ alone is. I was at this conference uh, on Friday, and I couldn't say it better than this guy there. I, I wasn't anticipating him teaching on this, but this guy, John Hawkins, I've never heard of him. I'm, I bet you've never heard of him, but he said it so brilliantly. Listen, he said, is there someone who can touch God without dying and touch man without becoming defiled? Is there someone who can touch God without dying, the transcendent, immortal, eternally holy God who lives in unapproachable light and at the same time reach down and touch man, the wretched, evil lover of darkness without becoming defiled? Is there someone who can touch God in his perfection without dying and touch man in his lowliness without becoming defiled? And the answer is Christ alone. Christ alone. Or to echo the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, is there someone who can step into the darkness in order to bring the light of the glory of God without being overwhelmed and consumed by the darkness? Christ alone. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, my goal this morning has only been to encourage you to actually lift your head boldly to look upon Christ alone in spite of your wretchedness. But in order for us to do that, I think we first have to get low and bow our heads in humility before him. To truly see and comprehend the glory of God, this wonderful work that he has done for us, I think we first have to be honest about the depth of our brokenness, our need before him. Only then can our hearts ultimately rejoice in the fullness of his saving work and the glory, 
the glory of his gentle friendship with sinners as depraved as you and I. Christ alone is all our hope, all our salvation. And in Christ alone, we are blessed to gaze upon the light of the glory of God himself. Let me pray. Lord, make us aware of your glory in the face of your son, Jesus. Let us not think lightly about this. Let us not see this as a trivial matter. Lord, let us not think that by seeing ourselves highly, we will better understand your grace. God, humble us. Make us humble before you. Don't let us stay there. Don't let us live there eternally. Rather, Lord, lift us up in the glory of Christ and what he has done for sinners like us, that he would give his precious life that we might be redeemed. Lord, I pray that we would be people who loudly proclaim the excellence of the name of Jesus, his glory above and beyond all things. And as we proclaim his glory in Christ alone, Father, would you lift us into your presence that we might see the light of God shining in the face of Jesus. What can we do but still our hearts? What can we do but bow low? What can we do but humble ourselves before you and lift high the name of Jesus? Amen.